0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community.
1: Today I'm fortunate to be speaking with Jandy Hardesty, who is the master of pretty much every single media I can imagine. Hi, Jandy. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you today? I'm doing well. You're giving me a precious hour of your time when it is nice and quiet in your home. I appreciate it. (laughs) No problem.
0: (laughs) Hopefully it'll stay that way.
1: You are prolific, and that is an understatement. You have a YouTube channel, a Twitch channel, a Twitter handle, uh, several blogs, at least one podcast, and you are a writer and producer of video and text at the University of Southern California. That's amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, I would say rather than saying I'm prolific, I would say that I have a lot of outlets and I don't produce nearly enough for any of them.
1: <laughs> I can appreciate that. You, you, There are so many different outlets that attract you that you end up spreading yourself almost too thin.
0: Yeah, that does happen.
1: I have more WordPress blogs than I can count and some of them get a lot of love and some of them need a lot of love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about how it works out.
1: So this is primarily a gaming podcast, but I want to start by focusing on what appears to be your passion which is film and movies. Now, you are a video producer, both on YouTube and at your day job, but that doesn't necessarily lend itself to being familiar with the works of Hollywood. So what is your history with film and film critique?
0: Well, I grew up in a a home that was pretty conservative, and my mom was a big fan of um, the classic era movies that she grew up with. So that's what I watched when I was growing up. I watched a lot of movies from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and kind of got where I really liked those, and as a teenager, I started kind of breaking out on my own and watching other things, uh, foreign films, uh, things earlier than my mom remembered, and also later. Uh, so it was just a really broad amount of things, and and that just has kind of continued with me as a passion and an interest.
1: Now you have your master's degree in English. Were you able to work some of this film history into your thesis?
0: I did. I did not actually write a thesis, but I did. I, I wrote as many papers as I could, either on film or. Uh, bringing film into uh, the literary papers I was writing as a point of comparison or uh, interpretation. So uh, it, it wasn't a focus, I would say, of my master's work, but I did try to sneak it in whenever I could.
1: So why pursue English as opposed to, say, a degree in film?
0: Good question. <laughs> uh, I did apply to a few schools uh, for their film Studies, uh, master's degree, or, or PhD programs. I, I decided early on I didn't actually want to pursue academia, so that's why I stuck with the masters. But uh, the a couple of the really good ones, I just didn't have enough background, like official background, in it as an undergrad to get into those programs because some of them are very exclusive, and uh, a lot of the other ones were very production focused, and I was not interested at that time in in production. So I was looking for some place that would let me learn. Theory and background and history of of uh, kind of all media like I, I don't really see that I mean there's a distinction between film and literature obviously but I think they're all on a continuum uh, so I actually my second round of grad school applications I, I looked more toward English programs the at schools that had film either had film programs or were or seemed to be very interested in uh, kind of the the intersections between film and literature.
1: And you've since parlayed all that passion and experience into a couple of film websites, at least two that I know of, The Frame and Row 3. Can you tell us a little bit more about these, including where their names come from and how they're different from each other?
0: Sure. Well, The Frame is my personal site, and I've had it in some form since I was in college. Uh, I mean, it's kind of morphed from being just a personal you know, like a live journal type blog that I just happened to run myself um, about my personal life. And, you know, then my studies in grad school, and then it's just kind of morphed into being more um, film centric. And, uh, you know, I've updated that with design and, and that kind of stuff to to indicate that shift. Row 3 is a group blog that I did not originate. Uh, I joined that in 2009. The, the folks who did originate it uh, started it in 2006. And the name comes from uh, they met in a theater in the third row, so <laughs> they named it Row 3 after that. The frame, I guess, is just the, – the title of it is just based on a frame of film, a single frame. Uh, there's a lot of quotes from filmmakers and uh, theorists about frames, and uh, there's one at the top of my blog right now that's uh, that says – uh, <laughs> I don't even know what it says I think it says the uh, the only thing that wh- what matters is what's in the frame and what's out of the frame uh, which is basically saying you can critique and talk about what's in the frame and what's out of the frame but it, it's it's two different things um, and that's from Martin Scorsese and there's also quotes from Jean-Luc Godard like uh, film is truth 24 times a second and then Brian De Palma riffed on that saying cinema is lies 24 frames a second
1: <laughs> I like it
0: so yeah, it was just a, a lot of things about film have to do with frames. So,
1: did you approach Row Three and say, "Hey, I love writing about films and I want to reach a broader audience than my own personal website," or did they solicit you and say, "Hey, we saw your work on the frame; we'd love for you to write for us"?
0: They solicited me, but I was a kind of a member of their community in the sense that I'd already I already knew about the blog and had. Um, commented on their articles a few times, but I hadn't approached them about writing for them. Uh, they saw some of my comments and liked them, I guess, and followed back to my blog and, and asked me if I would uh, like to write some stuff for them.
1: So do you have a beat?
0: Um, no. <laughs> uh, if I mean, if you look back through Row 3... I actually have not posted much there for the last year or two, really since my daughter was born. I've not been that active there. Um, 2011 and before, I was quite active. Really, the 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, no, 2000. 2000- Twelve and 2013 were kind of dry years for me uh, on every (laughs) front. (laughs) So I've just kind of started getting back into posting at Row 3, uh, but none of us have assigned things that, that we do. It's just kind of whatever interests us, and it has worked out because we all have different interests.
1: And what would you say your interests are? For example, The Frame has a banner image with Anna Karina, correct? Mm-hmm. And yet you also blog extensively, or seems extensively, about Looney Tunes. So that—that <laughs> that is a broad range.
0: I just started this Looney Tunes series, yeah. Um, I love classic animation, I love classic Hollywood films, but I also have um, a great love for 1960s art cinema in particular. The French New Wave is a, is a favorite of mine, so that's where the Anna Karina image comes
1: from. What do you think about what Hollywood is producing nowadays, with all the superhero movies and the multiverses <laughs> and the like?
0: You know, I enjoy that stuff. Like, I, I've seen probably eighty percent of the Marvel movies at this point. Um, I have my issues with it, which you would certainly see if you follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I had a whole rant about the Spider-Man thing uh, last week, but um, or whenever that news came out. But I enjoy it, but I don't. I don't think that it's everything. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I don't get fangirly about it, if that makes sense.
1: One of the concepts that I've recently been introduced to is that, just like how some books are more challenging than others to read, so too are certain movies more difficult than others. And I think a lot of what Hollywood produces, or at least what the big blockbusters tend to be, are not very difficult films. They're made for anybody to be enjoyed by, and they're very accessible. And I'm not right. sure that's necessarily pushing the narrative medium forward.
0: No, but it's not a problem either. Everyone needs something that they can just sit back and enjoy, and and that's what Hollywood tends to provide, and uh, that's what they've always tended to provide. There are other places to see other kinds of films, even now. There's a lot going on in the independent scene, the foreign film scene, that um, are a lot more challenging, but I don't think challenging in and of itself is necessarily a criterion for greatness. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I'm a very kind of broad pop culture fan, and I like a lot of different kind of things, and I think they all have value.
1: That's true. There's a lot of creative stuff being done in indie films, just like there's a lot of creative stuff being done in indie games, both of them thanks... Uh, significantly to the rise of crowdfunding like kickstarter i have so many documentaries sitting (laughs) on my bookshelf waiting for me to watch that i picked up on kickstarter because i wanted to live in a world where those films existed Mm -hmm. and so i I backed it and i just haven't gotten around to watching because there are so many on kickstarter
0: there are a lot it's a lot of filmmakers are going that route and a lot of uh, indie game makers as well yeah
1: Uh, A brief tangent, you mentioned that you've had the frame since you were in college more than a decade ago and have started on LiveJournal. I'm very much uh, an advocate for data archiving and preservation. How many of your old posts have migrated with you through all these CMSs that you've used?
0: Uh, Well, the LiveJournal posts have not, um, and I think that account is gone now. (laughs) I haven't checked uh, for a while. But... um, I actually started a blogger blog about when I was on LiveJournal. At some point, I just kind of became disenamored of the community that I was with. Like, I still liked the people, but it was um, a community based on a a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fandom (laughs) that I was no longer as invested in as I used to be. So I kind of... I wanted a place that wasn't tied to that, so that's when I created the Blogger blog, the first version of the frame, and uh, everything since then has has come on. I believe, I believe, if you look back, you you will still see those early college posts from my uh, from my Blogger days because I did import all those
1: into WordPress, which is what you're using now.
0: Yes, into my WordPress blog now.
1: I need I need to clarify a certain point though? Are you saying that you <laughs> broke up with Buffy?
0: No, I broke up with the fandom.
1: Okay, because <laughs> I don't know that we could continue this conversation if you no. were Buffy.
0: No, no, not at all. Buffy is still probably my all-time favorite TV show.
1: Okay, I'm glad. I we just, got that out of that. I
0: just became less invested in the fandom surrounding it.
1: Sure, because you know you only have so much energy, and new fandoms arise like Firefly.
0: Right. Well, and, and I don't want to, I don't know if any of them will listen to this, but I don't want to indicate that the people that I met through there, I'm still friends with a lot of them and I value those friendships. It's just the the, the fandom as a whole, as a thing, I was, um, I wanted to break with a little bit.
1: Right. It wasn't about the individuals, it was about the community. Exactly. <laughs> Got it. Apparently, though, writing isn't enough to contain your passion for film. You recently <laughs> launched a podcast after having guest appeared on several others. You now have your own with your husband called Not at Odds. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Not at Odds is um, what we call it the uh, podcast about the intersection of creativity and criticism. My husband is a, a screenwriter. He hasn't had anything produced yet other than a web series, which he produced himself, but that's still something. And... uh but he comes at things from a very kind of creative, like, screenwriter point of view. And I come at things from a very critical, analytical point of view. Not critical meaning bad, just meaning analytical and um, or negative. <laughs> and uh, we have really good, long conversations about media all the time. And we just kind of wanted to channel that into something that we could publish and uh, a. a- half hour long podcast seemed like the way to go for that and uh, with my relationship with the folks at Row 3 who also have a number of other podcasts it just seemed like a good fit to say hey can we throw ours on there too
1: because Row 3 has several other podcasts like Cinecast and Soundtrack of Your Life so this is quite the network they're building.
0: They're working on it they're trying to become more of a podcast network in part because uh, a lot of the writers have kind of drifted off to other things so it's not as active on the writing front as it used to be but the podcasting is very active still so um, they're, they're kind of moving more that direction, yeah.
1: Not at Odds is partly about film critique, which is what you bring to the conversation with your husband. And critique is something very different from film review. Can you t- what exactly is the difference?
0: <sighs> this is a good question, and one I actually have answered a lot of times, because I think there is a, a very strong distinction and a very important one. Um, uh, reviewing is something that... Uh, people do weekly in newspapers and on websites and in magazines. I get less magazines because they're usually monthly, but um, that is meant for as a consumer guide. So you critics see something early and they review it in their outlets and then people can read it and decide whether it's worth their 12 bucks or whatever. That's what reviewing is for. And that's important. Criticism is more in depth, it's more um, analytical. It's more looking, uh, not necessarily at whether this film is worth seeing, but what about it is you know makes it worthwhile or what is interesting about it. Uh, the the quick metric I usually use to describe this is you read reviews before seeing a film, and you read criticism after seeing it.
1: Oh, that's an interesting distinction. I'd never thought of it exactly that way. That's useful. And how come you write? I mean we're gonna to get to the gaming aspect of your life later in the, this podcast, but how come you don't write game reviews or game critiques?
0: because I play games really slowly, <laughs> so I could never write a game review because it would be out like a year after everyone else has already finished it but I, like I have written about games occasionally in in more of a critique or uh, you know first look kind of not not anything very um in depth because I just I don't know I don't Necessarily have the background in games that I do in films. I don't feel like so. Um, but that said, I do have a, f- a few pieces percolating in my head that I might uh, that I might write about games. It would be more on the criticism side or, or um, personal essay kind of thing rather than
1: reviews. You said you recently wrote something about life is strange, correct?
0: Uh, yes, that's still in process. <laughs> it has not been published or anything yet.
1: Oh, well, I, I hope it does. I look forward to seeing it.
0: It will come out somewhere. I just don't know where yet. <laughs>
1: So on your websites and on your podcasts, I've looked and have not been able to find any sort of advertisements or sponsors or the like. And so it seems to me that you're probably not getting rich off your film critique pursuits, just like most people don't off almost anything they do on the Internet. Mm -hmm. So what is your motivation to produce all this content? It takes a lot of time to write a review and a critique and do a YouTube channel and a Twitch channel and a podcast. And you're putting all this free content out there for people to consume. What do you get in return?
0: Well, I would say the reason for it is compulsion. I mean, mean, like I said, (laughs) I took a couple years off while I was uh, pregnant and had, while my daughter was an infant, and I just, you know, I had to get back. Like I couldn't. That was good time off. I needed to to not try to add anything else to my plate at that time. But now that she's a little older and I can, you know, have a little bit more more time, I, you know, I, I need to write again. It's it's just something that I have to do. And, you know, I could write for myself, but that's not as much fun. <laughs> I, I like putting it out there and seeing what other people think and, you know, interacting with, with other people who've written about similar topics. And it, it just, it, uh, it also just creates a great community because then I've got people on Twitter like you that I can meet and talk with. Uh, there's a lot of people on film Twitter that I have great conversations with that, you know, I wouldn't have if I didn't have some kind of presence
1: your choice of the word compulsion reminds me of something that fantasy author R.A. Salvatore used to say. He was one, he's still a, pro, a prolific science mm-hmm. fiction and fantasy author, but I haven't read his books in a while, but I grew up reading them prolifically. And he would always say at his book signings and at his speeches that you're a writer if you have to write. And he would say, if you can stop writing, I encourage you to do that because it is one of the most painful and arduous career choices you could make. Do not go down that path unless you can't choose anything else, unless you have to be a writer. And it sounds like you have to write.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do, and I don't. Yeah, I don't feel the need to make a career out of it necessarily. Although, I mean, I guess I kind of have in the sense that I'm a writer producer now. But I don't write and produce the kind of things for work that I do for pleasure. But yeah, I, I just I need to get it down. I need to get it out there. But yeah, I agree with Salvatore that if you can do anything else, <laughs> do it. <laughs> it's probably gonna gonna get you more money and, and more uh more success. But if you have to write, then that's what you have to do.
1: I've always been hopeful of the day when my passion can be my day job. And I respect the opportunities when that isn't the case because A well-paying day job that you can tolerate can still fund your passions, your pursuits outside of work. Mm -hmm. How would you say that you have managed that mix in your life? You are a writer-producer by day, as you just said, but not of the kind of content you do outside of work. Do you wish that you could be doing the frame and not at odds in row three for your living?
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it would be great (laughs) to be able to to write the kind of things you want to. But at the same time, I think there's also something to be said for writing things like this on the side in the sense that I don't have a need to have this kind of writing support me in You know, if I were writing for a film blog full time, you know, I'd probably have to write a lot of articles even then that I didn't want to write. I'd have to write news, which I don't really like. I'd probably have to write reviews, which I don't prefer to write. Uh, I'd have to write, I do like writing lists, so (laughs) I would have to write lists, but I would probably enjoy that. So yeah, and, and I think any job that you have, there's going to be a portion of it that you don't like, or that you don't like as much. So maybe in some ways, it's kind of nice to to keep the hobby things as a hobby, the things you the, the passionate things, and and then you can focus on the things you like about them.
1: I think that's why we have so many indie games and indie films nowadays. That people can pursue their artistic vision without compromising it to whatever the source of their revenue may be. And that's one of the great things about Patreon. I'm sure that you are so prolific in so many media, you could probably support that at least partially on Patreon.
0: It has crossed my mind. I won't deny it. <laughs> Just haven't found the right, the, the, the right project and the, the right attack the yet.
1: Ditto. I started outlining a Patreon months ago and I haven't launched it. And I don't know if I will, because I don't know that I necessarily am up to being held accountable yeah, you know, because it, it, exactly. Even, even if you don't have a venture capitalist or an investor, you still have your fans and in a way that's even more important because there's no investor to protect you from them mm-hmm. or to protect you from yourself.
0: Or to protect them from you.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that your day job scratches a creative itch that you don't get with these other pursuits?
0: What my day job does that's good is it has an editor. <laughs> like... um or it, like my boss is a an editor so uh a print editor not a video editor but anything that i produce goes through her and and she's very good at giving constructive criticism and um pushing me to do uh maybe to pay more attention than i would have otherwise and sometimes i miss having that on on my um on my blogs and you know my personal stuff uh even just having a copy editor would be good a lot of times but um yeah, she she pushes me to do stuff better, and uh, that is something that is very important for any job. And I think it's good also to to kind of remind myself that, that I have to pay a little more attention on my personal stuff to, to reach the same kind of level.
1: That's one of the downsides to Patreon. We say that the democratization of publishing has eliminated gatekeepers as if that's a bad thing. But gatekeepers can be good because they filter out the wheat from the chaff, and they help you become... A better writer, not just to produce mm-hmm. better writing, but they work with you to amplify your own natural talent from something raw into something refined. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I'm glad you have that at your day job, and it's you know, I I hope that the lessons that you learn at your day job filter out into your other pursuits as well.
0: That's what I hope for. I don't. It doesn't always. Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but <laughs> that that's something I strive toward.
1: So I was drawn to your Twitter handle because you pour dozens and dozens of hours into RPGs. And you talk about how you've spent 50 hours playing Dragon Age Inquisition. So in addition to all these films, you obviously have a passion for gaming as well. We briefly mentioned Life is Strange. What mm-hmm. would you say are some of your favorite I don't know platforms, genres, franchises?
0: Uh, well, I have a set of five or so that I usually tell people when they ask this question. So I'll just give you those. Um, is uh, Deus Ex from the PC time frame, I don't know when that actually came out, <laughs> but it's been a long time. The first Deus Ex. Uh, Grim Fandango, again, from its original release. I haven't played the remastered one, though. I can't, I can't wait to get my hands on that. Uh, Mass Effect series, but two in particular, uh, Red Dead Redemption and Knights of the Old Republic.
1: These games span quite the swath of time, so it sounds like you've been gaming from very young.
0: I, I mean, I've been gaming as long as I can remember in terms of, you know, basic DOS games and educational games that you played as a kid in the 80s, uh, Oregon Trail, Carmen San Diego, those kind of things. And then I kind of dropped it for a while and I picked it back up in the 90s with uh, PC games like Myst and the LucasArts games. And then I think it was a friend handed me Deus Ex and that was what kind of got me more into the hardcore style of gaming. And I, I got an Xbox when, when that came out and uh, have been an Xbox person ever since. But like I was never a Nintendo person, I never had a Nintendo console, so all of that that my husband was really into is just completely lost on me. So you and Jonathan
1: speak completely different languages. How do you even get along?
0: Uh, it, it's hard. <laughs> no, he likes all the Xbox stuff too, although he's a, a, a PlayStation person more than an Xbox person, so even then, but I mean, we, we like a lot of the same kind of games, we just have grown up with different platforms.
1: So when did you start streaming on Twitch?
0: pretty close to when it was released on the Xbox One, so not that long. (laughs) Um, I did a little bit of PC, like Minecraft streaming before that but um, that's about it and yeah it's mostly like I don't have any uh, aspirations for my Twitch channel other than it's there on the Xbox One and it's really easy to activate and so it's it, there's almost no barrier of entry to streaming on Twitch so there's kind of no reason not to and then it gives you a backup copy of, of your game that you've recorded uh, without any external hardware so I mean that's it <laughs>
1: unlike all your writing and your podcasting though twitch is much more raw it's live and unedited have you experienced any noticeable differences in performing for twitch compared to say performing for not at odds
0: i tend to be pretty much myself on all this all the time anytime i'm talking or writing um So it doesn't feel performative to me like it is to some degree because, you know, I'm talking more during a game than I would otherwise. But um, I also there's long swaths of time where I forget to talk and I'm like, well, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Most of the time I don't have anyone watching anyway, unless a friend of mine happens to be on. No, I I don't feel the need to perform for that audience because I don't have any investment in in wanting anything out of it. If I did, then I would obviously step up my game on that.
1: You said it's okay that nobody is listening, but you also said that one of the reasons you write for a blog instead of for yourself is because it's more fun to engage with your audience in your community. So why is it a different experience with video games?
0: Well, I mean it'd be fine if people were watching, but I'm not going out of my way to get listener to get viewers, I guess. And I don't really on my blog either. Like I post, you know, when I have a new article up, like I post it on Twitter a time or two during the day and that's about it. Like I don't really go out of my way to get readers either, but I do appreciate the ones that I have.
1: Putting your content out there as opposed to keeping it to yourself, there is the benefit of being able to engage with your audience, but it also takes a certain amount of courage and confidence to put your stuff out there because I as a writer, especially Earlier in my writing career, I was, I I identified with my writing. It became an extension of me. And when people critiqued my writing, they were critiquing me. Mm -hmm. So when you put your stuff out there, you have to be ready for the possibility that people might not like it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's true. And I've had a few times where people have, have not liked something I've written. I, I've been lucky in that usually I get supportive comments and uh, reactions. Um, but I, I won't deny that there's a little bit of an intimidation factor for me in moving to bigger websites. I actually have, uh, an open invitation at a, a larger website to, to pitch to them, a larger film website. And, I just I'm in this like paralysis right now trying to find the right topic for that and something that I can handle that will be worthy of of that. So, um I know I need to get over that hump and just submit something to them, but uh even even now with the the years of experience I have on my personal blog and even Row 3, I just still have this kind of intimidation factor with some of those bigger sites.
1: Really? I mean, you're so <laughs> well accomplished and you seem to be well respected as well, although I don't know what the film circle is like. What could possibly intimidate you from submitting to a larger website?
0: I don't know. It's just a larger platform, you know, like more people reading it who don't already know me personally, a, bi- a bigger audience, uh, a bigger site that, that I feel like would require more um, more – i don 't even know how to say what i 'm trying to say when I write for my blog like it 's very easy. I just write what I want to write. you know I maybe give it a, a proofread pass and that 's it like there 's not very many people who come on my blog and are like, Oh you got all these factual things wrong, or you got this wrong? Maybe I need that but <laughs> and i don 't think that would necessarily be a problem, but it 's just a, a larger group of people that could potentially know more than me. More than I know, I should use proper grammar on podcasts. (laughs) Don't
1: don't worry, this is edited. And you would have, if you wrote for a larger website, you'd have an editor too, making sure that you were factually correct. True. You know, I mean, ultimately, the buck does stop with them. True. I am an editor for various magazines, and I find it really difficult to look at any print edition that has already shipped because. I see the errors I let through, and when it's in print, unlike when it's online, you can't fix it. It's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one issue where, like, it went to the printer that afternoon, and that night I realized, oh crap, we should have replaced that photo with a different one. And I literally could not sleep that night because I was trying to figure out how am I going to make this up to the readers? It's too late. I can't pulp the whole issue and reprint it. I don't have the budget for that.
0: Yeah, I I believe you. That's one of the great things about writing online is you can always fix it. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Although if the Internet Archive Ant's Wayback Machine has perused your site, your error will be preserved. And people can say, look, you had it wrong originally. If you did fix it, (laughs) you can't cover up your steps completely.
0: No. Well, and I don't know if you should even try. I'm kind of a fan of the update edit that actually says, hey, we screwed up and this is what we should have done. (laughs) Yep. Rather than the silent edit.
1: Right. The cover up. I think it's important to acknowledge your errors. You know, people read a version of this story that was wrong and that's our fault. You didn't imagine things. You're not suffering from delusions. So one of the, as I mentioned, I was drawn to your Twitter handle because of not only the prolific games and also the variety of media that you produce and consume that align so closely with mine, but the volume of what you produce and consume seems at odds with the reason why this is a narrow one-hour window in which you can grant an interview, which is you have a two-year-old asleep in the other room. (laughs) Yep, that's right. I mean, my mom, she didn't have just one two-year-old. She had four kids at different times, and... Uh, But I imagine that any one of them kept her hands full, and especially in that era and her generation, she was a full-time mom, and she was busy. So how do you find time to be a full-time video content producer and editor at your day job, play 50 hours of Dragon Age Inquisition, write two film blogs, keep a podcast, a YouTube channel, a Twitch handle, a Twitter handle, and raise a two-year-old? I mean, I don't get it.
0: Well, on the one hand, I think you're overestimating, again, how prolific I am on all those channels. (laughs) I write maybe two to three posts a week on my blog, if that. Sometimes I have a hard week and I don't get anything written. So I don't have a strict schedule for for when things go live. Um, Like I said, row three, I've just started the podcast over there and I posted two things this year. YouTube is basically just porting over what I did on Twitch uh, and uh, maybe a couple other series that I do Briefly, I mean, I started this one uh, flick charting, which is a website that where you compare movies, and so I've done like three videos in that, but those are ten minutes each. And that's it. So. I feel like I'm not that prolific. And if you look at earlier years, like before 2015, I, I there were months where I didn't do anything at all. So this is twenty fifteen for me is kind of a, a stepping back in and just getting my toes back in the water and seeing if I can actually produce content again on a, a regular basis the way I did before my daughter was born. Um so far it's kind of going okay, <laughs> but I don't know how long I'll be able to keep it up. But as far as time management and how that works, a lot of it is just making the most of every moment that you have. I work from home, so that helps a lot because I don't have a commute. uh, So I can start work at 6.30 in the morning, and I usually do, and then I'm done by like 3. So then I have time in the afternoon to spend more time with my daughter. And uh, work is all out of the way in the evening, so I have all the evening hours after she goes to bed sometimes I use my lunch hour to, to do things and occasionally I'll be doing a really mundane task for for work and you know updating spreadsheets or something and so I'll throw on a, a looney Tunes or something and then you know that's double time right there right because that's research for my post so there's a lot of ways you can do that I, I keep up with blogs on my phone you know while she's at the park <laughs> or you know something like that there's there's a lot of little lost moments that I think we waste during the day and I still waste a lot of them but I'm getting better at wasting fewer of them. And I think that's a big thing. And uh, another piece of advice that someone gave me when she was an infant and I was kind of having a nervous breakdown about how little time I had and how many things I wanted to do in that little amount of time was someone told me that you can't, you can do everything, but you can't do everything at the same time. And so that was really helpful for me that, hey, you know, you just need to pick Something to focus on, you know. Even if it's this week or this month, you say, "Okay, this is the area that I'm going to focus on," and everything else can wait till next month, and then I'll focus on that thing. So that's kind of what I found myself doing for the past year or two. Uh, of, I'll do a burst of content for the blog, or a burst of, you know, watching a bunch of movies that will be prepare me for writing posts later, um, and then I'll spend the weekend just binging on gaming or something like that. So, uh, and and not and the biggest part is don't feel bad about all the things that you're missing during that time, but let yourself enjoy and focus on the thing that you are focused on.
1: What kind of things that you're missing are you referring to?
0: <laughs> well, just the fact that you can't, you know, I, I can't work full time and watch and uh, enjoy the baby and watch a movie every night and play games every night and spend some time reading every night and spend some time writing every night there. You can't do that. There's not enough hours. So I, I have started being like, okay, well, Saturday night is movie night with my husband. So that night is going to be a movie. And, uh, you know, Wednesday night I have choir practice. So that's going to be choir practice and catching up on podcasts because it's a long drive. (laughs) And so then, like, Thursday night is I'm going to watch another movie for my blog research. And, you know, like, Monday night is going to be a gaming night. So I don't stick to that super... um, Strictly, but having those kind of things in my head helps me a lot to to focus on the thing I need to focus on that night.
1: So these are all things you're doing after your daughter goes to bed.
0: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do a lot while she's up except uh, stuff with her or um, or work because I do usually get my work done while she's up or while she's napping.
1: On a previous episode of Polygamer, we had a panel of game developers who were also parents, and the advice that Scott McMillan on that panel ended with was if there's anything you want to do with your life that you feel you won't be complete until you've accomplished that thing, do it before you have children. Because (laughs) once you have children, either you won't be able to do that thing or you won't want to do that thing because your priorities will change. And that's fine. But just make sure that you understand that once you have children, it's an irrevocable change to your life. Now, you had your daughter... About 10 years later, after my mom would have become a parent for the first time, and you spent some of that time getting your master's degree, what mm-hmm. else were you doing with that time before you said, okay, now I'm ready to have a family, if I may ask?
0: Well, I was trying to become a full-time serious film critic <laughs> uh, for you know for money for a publication. On and off, I-, I was doing that. That's what I would have wanted to do, and that's one of the reasons why I moved out to Los Angeles, where there's a, a thriving film culture. I mean, I probably could have done it if I'd been a little bit more ambitious, but I'm not as hungry for it as some other people, I think. So when I I lucked basically lucked into the job at the University of Southern California, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is what I'm doing. And um, it wasn't long after that that I met my now husband and, and we got married. So it, my priorities did change, but I, I don't know. He's definitely right that, that your priorities change, and sometimes it's not even that – you can't do things that you wanted to do before. A lot of times it is just that you don't want to do them anymore or, or you, or they're a lower priority for you now. Like I want to travel with my husband and we didn't get a lot of time to do that before my daughter was born, but I'm like, okay, well now we get to travel as three of us, you know, when she's a little older uh, or four of us, if we ever have another one, you know, Or, or we get to travel after we retire. It's just, everything just gets put on a different timeline and that's okay.
1: How does being a parent influence your game choices? For example, you recently tweeted that under no circumstances would you ever play Krill Bite's game Among the Sleep.
0: It has definitely affected the kinds of media that I'm able to to handle. Um, I've never been a big horror fan anyway, but I was getting pretty good at at handling horror and, and learning to enjoy it in the few years before she was born, because my husband's a big horror fan. So he was kind of easing me into that, um, both in film and, and gaming. But as soon as I got pregnant, like, I couldn't deal with anything that was gory. So I just had to take that back off the plate. (laughs) And I just, I'm getting to the point now where I can watch that again and it doesn't make me feel sick, but child in danger stories, really affect me a lot more than they used to. I used to be able to watch child endanger stories and just be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm sure the kid's going to be fine, but now it's just really really grabs me in a way that I that I can't uh rationally explain. <laughs> so that was the issue with Among the Sleep is just my daughter's too and I don't think I could handle seeing a story, especially not playing a story where a two-year-old was in danger like or seemingly in danger like that.
1: Since you are such a multimedia household, there have been various studies and recommendations, some proven, some not, about limiting children's screen time or Mm -hmm. making sure that they're only exposed to certain kinds of media. What are you introducing your daughter to, especially in terms of movies and games?
0: Well, I try to um, limit her screen time to some degree. I'm not as... um, I'm not as strict about it as I think a lot of parents are are these days and uh, obviously that's that line's going to be different for everybody but with my husband and I both being so engaged in multimedia as you say that it would be difficult for us to do even our jobs without having computers and screens around all the time so we let her watch a good bit of TV not TV I should I should clarify we don't watch TV she watches Disney movies the full length ones and she watches like Mickey Mouse shorts and she watches Looney Tunes with me, um, for the series. And I think what I I say, we limit it to not too much in a day and we try to make sure that she's well balanced and, you know, spending time outside and spending time, um, playing inside, doing creative things, uh, coloring and, um, you know, building with blocks and things like that, that kind of exercise the rest of, of her, um, her needs as a a two-year-old as a child Uh, and then we also try to watch with the the kinds of media that we expose her to that she obviously doesn't see inappropriate things like gore or overly violent things like that some would question my use of looney tunes but (laughs) i grew up with looney tunes and i'm not a bully so (laughs) we'll deal with that when we come to it i guess The other thing is we don't tend to watch TV with her that would have a lot of interruptions or fast editing or or commercials. To me, commercials in children's programming is one of the most terrible things that, that exists, so we try to keep her away from that.
1: I get what you mean about Looney Tunes. You grew up with it, and you're fine, and you want your daughter to grow up with that. I understand the recommendations to limit a child's screen time, and belatedly, I've enacted that lifestyle for myself. I completely unplugged 16 years ago, and I don't have Hulu, Netflix, or anything of the sort to replace it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if I were to ever have a child, I can't imagine that child not growing up with Sesame Street in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood like I did, because those those are such positive memories and experiences for me.
0: Well, and you want to share what you loved with them, and, and that's what we've done so far. I'm sure at some point she'll find out that other things exist, and, and we'll have to deal with whether we want her to watch Adora the Explorer all day or something. But no, at this point, like I feel like we have a, an opportunity to kind of shape the, the things that she likes and give her more of a, a wider uh, exposure to things, because I don't want her to only like the new things or all the, you know, the current things. I wanted to have a wide range of appreciation like I grew up with, even wider than I grew up with. And uh, I, I am hoping that, <laughs> that these early experiences will contribute to that.
1: Did you read about the father who basically did a social experiment with his son who, like every year for the first, for the, from the child being like two to 12, he had to introduce the kid to a different generation of game consoles and say, <laughs> this is what you get this year?
0: I did. I did read that article. I, I found it really enjoyable. Uh, we've already missed the boat on that, or I guess she'd only be watching silent films still, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not too late. She might not even, you know... You she might not remember. <laughs> you don't have memories of your first two years, so this can be That's her right. first memory.
0: We can we can start now. Only Charlie Chaplin from now on until until she uh, graduates to, what, early talkies, right? <laughs> 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 no, I, think... I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to her. But I have started showing her some of the black and white Looney Tunes as a, as. Uh, as well as the color ones. And she seems to enjoy the black and white ones just as much. So uh, I, I think that's that's always a big hurdle for kids to get over if they've only been exposed to color things. So, uh, so far, that seems to be going well, my experiments in exposing her to black and white.
1: Of course, then you'll have to answer the question, when did the world turn color?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm a good historian, so we'll, we'll, we can deal with that.
1: So you're not going to make up something like Calvin's father did in Calvin and Hobbes?
0: Probably not.
1: Oh, then what's what's the (laughs) point of having a kid if you can't mess with them?
0: Oh, I'm sure she'll get messed with. Her dad is, he's a goofball,
1: so (laughs) (laughs) she'll get messed with plenty without me having to worry about it too much. So we've talked about movies, we've talked about games and writing. You are also an avid reader. You're on Goodreads, and I see on Twitter you're constantly updating what books you're reading.
0: Yeah, but if you follow those, it's often not very many pages that I read at a time. Um, I I like reading. This is the first year I've kind of gotten back into it since I graduated grad school. Um, I literally went for those six or eight years reading almost nothing just because a a, a master's degree in English lit will burn you off of reading for a while (laughs) because you're reading a novel a week for two years. But this year, the end of last year and this year, I kind of have made a concerted effort to spend a little bit more time reading. Yeah, so I, I, I'm enjoying that. But it is, I do have to try to make sure I don't bite off more than I can chew, which I may have done since I just started uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is much longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs>
1: and, and if you're reading only a few pages at a time, that book is going to take you the better part of the year.
0: It may. I may be at that, you know, in December, and I've, you know, I've read two books this year. But you know what? I will have enjoyed those books. So.
1: Have you made yourself a Goodreads goal of reading a certain number of books this year?
0: Uh ten. I put in ten. That's what I read last year, and that was um that was about right for, for last year, so I, I figured I'd try the same thing again.
1: Yeah, I think that's realistic, and I think also it's better to set your goal low and overachieve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your taste seemed to run pretty similar to mine. You had previously written a review of the girl with all the gifts, which was already on my radar and which I just started reading this week.
0: Did you get any further in it than the last time we talked? <laughs>
1: Well, as I said on Twitter, I read only the first three pages in my first sitting because it was 1 a.m. and I was falling asleep. Uh, Last night I went to bed at 12.30, and so I was able to (laughs) finish the first chapter. Oh, okay. Uh, So, yeah, I I think you said this book picks up quickly, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. It's it's by no means slow going for me because of the content. It's just the time at which I choose to read it, and it seems like it's going to be a really good book.
0: It It is really good. I really enjoyed it.
1: What are some of your other favorite books? You already had Ready to Tell Me your five favorite games. Do you have a same, similar list for books?
0: I didn't make a similar list for books, but I can I can tell you that right off the top of my head. The first few that come to mind, anyway, are um, I really love Neil Stevenson's books, and Snow Crash is uh, my favorite. And going the opposite end of the spectrum, Virginia Woolf is a favorite uh, with uh, Mrs. Dalloway. I really like F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night. Another older one, and uh, let me see if I can pick a newer one. Uh, okay, well, my, my favorite book from last year was David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, which really combines kind of the, the realistic fiction with a little touch of sci-fi that is kind of what I would say is my favorite genre.
1: Interesting. I'll have to look that up. I like that you said it's a little bit of a touch of science fiction because... I tend not to read books of things that could actually happen. Same thing with TV shows. I need it to have some element of the unreal, whether that's fantasy Mm -hmm. or science fiction. And so it sounds like the bone clocks might fit that description.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's... That's kind of what I'm really leaning toward these days is, um, and, and that's what I like about uh, Stevenson and, and William Gibson and people like that is it's our world or near future world where just a few things are different, but a lot of things are recognizable. But yeah, if it's just a, a straight, realistic fiction book, I'm usually not that interested. I kind of need something that's a little bit more uh, intriguing to, to pull me in.
1: Since you mentioned Virginia Woolf, what did you think of the 2002 film The Hours?
0: I liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I haven't read the book that that's based on, but yeah, I enjoyed the film.
1: I haven't read the book, and I, to be honest, you know, don't hate me, but I don't think I've read any Virginia Woolf either. I'm not an English Oh, that's major. okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for not judging me. I appreciate it. Uh, so I received this movie as a gift from my students. I used to teach English composition, mm-hmm. and I don't think I had the background in which to properly appreciate it.
0: There's a lot of people who even who are into... English Lit and Virginia Woolf that don't really care for that movie or the book that it's based on, so you're in good company (laughs) (laughs) if you didn't care for it.
1: (laughs) 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 I don't think it's that I didn't like it. It's that I didn't appreciate it, if if there's a difference. I should have asked this much earlier, so now we've gone over your favorite games and your favorite books. What about your favorite movies?
0: Sure. My number one all-time favorite movie is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Uh, Hitchcock is probably my favorite filmmaker of all time.
1: You're not referring to the Christopher Reeve remake.
0: No, I have seen that, but no. <laughs> the the original with Jimmy Stewart, all the way.
1: Uh, any other films you want to mention?
0: Well, let me see. I can see if I can go th- think through my top five. I think Bonnie and Clyde is my number two right now. Uh, the 67 Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Mulholland Drive is a favorite. Uh, David Lynch and I kind of go either way, but Mulholland Drive I really love. Jean-Luc Godard's Band of Outsiders is my number four. That's my French New Wave contribution to my top five I guess and I actually can't remember what my number five is but it might be something like Raiders of the Lost Ark because I do love that as well.
1: Are you going to be watching the new Twin Peaks? You
0: know, I don't know. I've I've seen all of the series of Twin Peaks um, but I haven't seen Firewalk with me yet so I need to see that first probably before I watch any any of the new one. And uh, my husband has not seen the series the original series at all. Uh, well we've watched I made him watch the first couple episodes and then we've gotten sidetracked by other things even though he liked it. So we need to get back to that and then uh, if we've seen all that then we might watch the new one.
1: You mentioned that you show Disney films to your daughter. What would you say is your favorite animated film, whether it's hand-drawn or CGI?
0: Oh, man. I'd have to look that up. <laughs> um, I would definitely have to look that up. Uh, of of Disney, of Disney movies, just because, I mean, there's a lot of animation that's not for kids, and my brain doesn't really put them in the same category. Sure. But I, I really love Lady and the Tramp. That's probably my favorite one. And that was a favorite growing up. I think my first stuffed animal ever was Tramp, so that has a... A uh, real nostalgic quality for me.
1: Favorite Pixar film?
0: Mm, probably going to stick with the original Toy Story on that. Or Monsters, Inc. Monsters, Inc. is really great, too.
1: What about Monsters, You?
0: I didn't see that one. <laughs> that, w- that was uh, during that time when uh, my daughter was alive. <laughs> <laughs> I.e. the time when I don't go see movies in theaters.
1: When you were just completely off the grid.
0: <laughs> Pretty much. All right.
1: We're coming up on an hour. There's one other topic I wanted to ask you about. Your Twitter handle is FaithX5, and that's also your handle in many other places. Mm -hmm. What does that mean?
0: Um, That is a Buffy reference, bringing it back around to the Buffy
1: fandom. Oh, five by five.
0: Yeah, Faith 5x5. Five five. Um I started watching Buffy in season 3. Um I eventually went back and watched the rest of it. So I I um Faith was in season 3 and I kind of even though she's completely not anything like me, I kind of gravitated toward the character and especially in her redemption arc in uh, Buffy season 4 and Angel season 1. So I really loved the character and I went I started posting on a Buffy board. And I think I originally started posting as Faith 5x5. Five and uh discovered that someone else was already using that handle cuz it was a, a board that didn't have logins so um so then i just kind of mashed them together and became faith by 5 that would have been in about 2000 no 2001 probably maybe 2002 and i have used that ever since
1: I'm sorry did you say that you identified with faith's redemption arc
0: I said i enjoyed faith Redem- faith's redemption arc
1: okay <laughs> i was going to say i mean that's a very <laughs> peculiar story to identify with
0: no, I thought it. I thought it was really well done, and I, I appreciated. Um, I mean, Eliza Dushku gets a bad rap a, a lot of times for for her acting ability, and I think she actually pulled that off really well. So right. I, I appreciated it.
1: She does. I, I've actually yeah. never heard that.
0: Oh no, really? No, a lot of people really don't like Eliza Dushku. <laughs> oh,
1: I thought Dollhouse was magnificent.
0: Yeah, I did too. I think she's great, but uh, that is not necessarily a ma- Well, I don't know. Among Buffy fans, it might be a majority, but there's a lot of people who don't really care for her.
1: Hmm. Well, I also liked her in Sex and Breakfast. I see haven't seen
0: that. Mm-mm.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it was funny. I actually met her at a fan convention a couple years ago, and I mentioned that I really liked that film. Well, first of all, whenever I meet a celebrity, I try to acknowledge a work that they did that they're not necessarily best known for. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I met James Marsters, and everybody's going to say, oh, I loved you as Spike, and which, right. which I did. <laughs> but, you know, I went up to him and I said, you know, you were a great Lex Luthor, because he did voice acting in one of the, the straight-to-DVD uh, DCU films. Okay. And he just, like, he looked totally <laughs> taken aback. He's like, wow, you did? Thanks. That was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> and he went off on this whole tale about how he appeared on an episode of Smallville, and, like, the guy who played Lex Luthor on that show was like, so, you're Lex Luthor, too, huh? And I was like, yeah, I am, and... Uh, It was great. And so when I saw Eliza Dushku, I said, you were great in Sex and Breakfast. She's like, oh, wow, really? You saw that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's
1: a good way to get better conversations than most people get. Right. You know, and I just, I'm also trying to be empathetic with them because I've done some stage acting and I have, you know, had my photo in newspapers for columns that I wrote. And when people say, oh, I love that thing you did 10 years ago, I'm like, that was ten years ago. I've done a lot yeah. of stuff since then. I'm since like, then, right? Like, imagine Mark Hamill. How many people say, "Oh man, you're Luke Skywalker"? He's like, "Yeah, I was. I was also the Joker." <laughs> you know, my, my husband usually identifies
0: him as the Joker, just to be, you know, <laughs> to be like, to be like that to, to highlight something lesser known.
1: Right. I don't think necessarily in the communities you and I run in that's unusual. But for you know, for most people, I, I have friends and relatives who have no idea that Mark Hamill is the Joker. Yeah. And I don't care who they've cast as the Joker nowadays in the latest Batman games or TV shows. He's still the Joker. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, wow. We have covered so many bases. <laughs> pr- production, consumption, books, movies, TV shows, games. I mean, the only thing we didn't talk about was music. And I don't have anything to contribute to that. So
0: <laughs> I used to would have had something to contribute. I was into the music scene here in L.A., uh, In like 2009, 2010, but I have completely dropped off the face of that. I haven't even listened to new music in a while.
1: And you sing in a choir.
0: Well, right. Yeah, for church. That's (laughs) that's, uh,
1: different. (laughs) You're probably not going to get any record deals out of that.
0: No, not at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I used to sing in a glee club, but that was was a different lifetime. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Jandy, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And since we are at an hour, I'm trying to be respectful of your need to be with your daughter.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate it. I think she has woken up, so.
1: Okay, and it's important that her mother be there for her unless <laughs> she think, "Oh no, my mother's abandoned me."
0: Yeah, exactly. And then and then what is it? Never what is it? Never sleep.
1: What is it called? Uh, sleep. among the sleep.
0: Among the sleep. Yeah, I don't actually know what that title means. It's kind of awkward, but um yeah she's gonna in- enact that in real life
1: <laughs> well for, i read a spoiler and i think that the conditions in which that game occur require a certain kind of mother that you most certainly are not so <laughs> you don't have to worry about that
0: <laughs> all right Anyway, <laughs> thank you good. again
1: so much for your time and
0: thank you for contacting me
1: yeah people can find you on twitter at faith x5 as we just mentioned anywhere else
0: uh just my website is the and that's uh, pretty much it
1: great thank you so much talk to you later
0: thank you so much ken This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.
1: Okay, and let me make sure I have your name right, Jandy Hardesty. That's right. Lovely. Excellent.
0: You even pronounced it correctly.
1: How, how do other people pronounce it?
0: Um, I've had a few people try Hardesty, like with the accent in a weird place. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, but it's just Hardest with a Y at the end. I don't know why it's that hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, can you pronounce my last name?
0: No, <laughs> I'm not even going to try. I should I should be able to because I've listened to your Let's Plays and your podcast, but um, I'm, I'm not good with names, so I'm not even going to try.
1: Well, you're in good company. Even Mystery Science Theater 3000's Tom Servo, Kevin Murphy, gets tripped up on my name. Ken Gagne, Gagne, excuse me, they say Gagne here, they say it here in Minnesota too, not Gagne like some Canadian wood trapper, it's Gagne.